0: This is the first Sunday in Lent, and I thought in my sermon what I'd preach about today mainly is the story of the temptation of Christ, which we read every first Sunday in Lent, uh, one of the versions of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. We read one of the versions of the temptation of Christ. But I thought before that I'd say some things about the origin of Lent, and sort of a rehash or a recapitulation of what I said on Ash Wednesday, because I love recapitulation, the word. <laughs> One of my favorite words. Uh, uh, in, in, uh, uh, I was raised as a Christian scientist, and uh, Mary Baker in her miscellaneous writings, has a little book called Recapitulation, although if you read it, you can't figure out what in the world she's trying to recapitulate, but there it is. But I've always liked recapitulation, you know, it's just a great, great word. So I'm going to do that and uh, then see where it takes us. But you know, I got to thinking... After reading, hearing Dan again, read again very well, by the way, the reading from Paul from Romans. And, um, you know, this stuff for most people nowadays, I think, is pretty hard to get. And uh, yet, it's about... This is one of the meta-narratives of Christianity. And since we talk a lot about post-modernity, or I do anyway... Uh, one of the things that post-modernity puts before everybody is, are these great stories, these narratives, useful to people now, or do they all look at them suspiciously, because we heard two today, at least. And one was the story of Adam and Eve. How did we go off the rails? That's the story. That's what it's about. And it's the ancients' version or explanation of doing that. Remember, when you read for Adam and Eve... The story, you're not reading about two historical people. This was written during the Babylonian captivity. <clears throat> so it's an attempt to tell the narrative to the children of the people who were taken away from Jerusalem and to explain to them how they got there, uh, here from there and what went on. Because you really can't speak about creating the world prior to it being created because you weren't there yet, Right. With, you can't speak in philosophy. We call a priori. <laughs> you know, it's after the fact, a posteriori, right? So uh, it's trying to say, why do we wear clothes? How come people are willful? You know, what happened um, when we we did this, and was there a better time, and so on and so on. So that's a meta narrative. Is it useful to people now or not? It's certainly part of the Christian story. And uh, so we need to think just, I'm just putting it out there for you to think about. There's no sort of point I'm making. I'm merely commenting to you where that is, uh, where we are with that these days in our culture and in our time in highfalutin academic circles and in the ordinary uh, commonplace thinking through of people about what it is that's true and not true. So let's talk about Lent. You know, originally in the church's life, I've said this to you before, we didn't have Jesus die on the cross, rise again from the dead and ascend into heaven, and then the apostles and the disciples walk down to St. Luke's Church downtown Jerusalem and begin to celebrate services from the Book of Common Prayer. Right? The liturgical year goes through a a process of development and evolution. So uh, the first... Thing in the liturgical year was the celebration of Easter, and people began then to say, "We need to have a little bit of preparation for this feast." So we're going to fast for three days before, and then it gets to be a week, and then before you know it, we're into 40, forty days. So the original purpose of the season of Lent was to do the final preparation. Uh, of people who were to be baptized once a year at the great vigil of Easter. And so this was sort of the intensification of their preparation uh, to get ready to do this. But there was also a parallel track, and I'm talking about this today because of the gospel for today. And that is, uh, I think this probably began to happen really after the Constantinian settlement in 314, when Constantine made Christianity the legal religion of the Roman Empire, that meant that everybody got baptized. So before you know it, there wasn't just a whole lot of candidates during this season of preparation for baptism. We, we had them baptized pretty quick. But what began to happen was uh, someone had said, you know, we, we're having to contend with, a, with something, and what we're contending with is that we made all these promises uh, at our baptism, but we haven't stuck to them. So what do you do with people who are guilty of post-baptismal sin? Right? So there were a whole lot of uh, views on that matter, right? about what it is that should be done. Some said, well, there's no way back. They're finished. Chuck them. There are others who said, well, maybe one time they can come back. And there were others who said, let's uh, understand that the default position is generosity, and we have a means to reconnect uh, to the promises of God, and that's what the Church has on offer. But spiritually, what do we do? And one of the things that people do who live a life of self-reflection is to say, why don't we take these 40 days and see them as following the Savior into the desert? like he was in the desert for 40 days for a period of prayer and fasting and so on. So we're going to do that too because we understand him uh, to be the template. So we will go with him. So what they began to say is, obviously we can't go into the desert geographically. It has to be a place of interior purification. It's, it's a time when we do some thinking straight thinking about our lives maybe in a more intentional way than we normally do so that purpose of Lent now becomes comes into the Ascendant and by the time you and I have no, learned anything about it certainly out of the middle ages and everything Lent has become an elaborate set of you know self denials and do this and not do that and no sees candy and you know <laughs> we're so, um, there's nothing wrong with acts of self-denial, by the way, but uh, it, the focus can get pretty, pretty detailed, you know. And that's not really what this season is about. It's a, it's a little bit more uh, broader thing. And we have revived the importance of understanding our, the centrality of our baptism. So, every Ash Wednesday, I go into the church and open the prayer book to page 304, and I read to myself the baptismal covenant. And I ask myself, beginning on the first day, on Ash Wednesday, how have I done over the past year here? So I use the baptismal covenant as an examine, which is an old-fashioned word, E-X-A-M-E-N, to say how am I going to uh, think now about these 40 days and what are are the areas, the soft spots, that I think maybe uh, deserve my attention? And what am I going to do? So that's a way that we can see that, the baptismal emphasis but also uh, the, the, the time of some form of interior purification, to think about that. I don't mean purity in the sense that some people always talk about purity. I mean it, it, it's a sense of clarity about your, about your circumstances and your personal situation. So that's what Lent started out as, and it, it is when it's kept with some degree uh, of integrity. On Ash Wednesday, I said there are three themes which we are going to see uh, over and over again either explicitly or implicitly in the readings during Lent. And those themes are repentance, reconciliation, and clean motives. Repentance is the way in which we look at our lives in a new way. We turn around and look at things differently. We reconnect to uh, our sense of conversion. In religious terms, this means our commitment to Jesus Christ. It means our commitment to the life, the community of faith we call the church. But this is also a time when you think about reconverting yourself for all of the important things of your life. So when you think about your vocation and what it is you do and what led you to be and do what you're doing, uh, how do you sort of uh, revivify that? And, and get the energy and the stamina and the perseverance to continue uh, and the enthusiasm. So it's, it's, remember, I say over and over again, the spiritual life is life, the whole of life. Body, soul, mind, spirit given to God in love. So repentance means resolve, turning around, conversion, but it also means putting it in your hands and making making some making it real in relationship, in behavior. Reconciliation is uh, a reminder that you and I are all called to be part of the processes of God's reconciling work in the world. On page 855 of the Book of Common Prayer in the Catechism, it says, What is the mission of the church? And the answer is the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity with God and each other in Christ. So we're to be part of this process of reconciliation. And in big and small ways, that is a very important part of the church's work. That's why we need to be people of peace. That's why we need to see that uh, those uh, groups and organizations and everything in our society that want to... Create all of this kind of turmoil and factionalism. That we we speak against that, and that we say we want in some way to see a way forward where we bring people with disparate views to some species of common cause. That that's a godly thing to do and good work, and we ought to be doing it. So reconciliation, and finally, particularly in this cycle of readings, Year A, we read from Matthew's Gospel. And more than any other gospel writer, uh, Matthew gives to us the sayings of Jesus that have something to do with clean motives, and what's going on inside, what your motives are. Are they corrupt, or are they godly, and that we need to, to remember that. And this, of course, is where Father Thomas Keating comes into play, and I mentioned on on Ash Wednesday he said here's the location for the corrupt motives the three energy centers that everybody must contend with security and survival affection and esteem and power and control all of those things you and I need to have and to do the, 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 the period of, of interior purification does not mean eliminating security and survival, affection and esteem, and power of control. It means seeing how if in fact these things have gotten out of balance or uh, you have discovered you 're just not able to uh, uh, grasp what those mean in a mature sense so how would how, as we would begin to do that, what would be one of the major things a person can do to think about um, security and survival, affection and esteem and power and control. And that would be to take responsibility for your own being and destiny. To take responsibility for your own being and destiny. People who are emotionally mature tend to be able to do that maybe at least 70% of the time. So that's a a, a good goal. So we're going to visit this in a minute with with the gospel. Because Jesus today goes into the wilderness and is tempted by the devil or by Satan. You know, the word Satan in the Bible means advocate. So here's the advocate... Uh, speaking to Jesus about security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell the story of the uh, temptation, and Luke and Matthew's version is just about identical, which means that they got it. You know, I continue on my uh, the breathless tour of the synoptic theory. <laughs> Luke and Matthew were using Q. (laughs) That's where they got this story of the temptation of Christ in their gospel. So the only difference between Matthew and Luke is that Matthew orders the temptations differently than Luke does. Because he has a point that he wants to make about what this is. But otherwise they are completely identical. Q is a source we do not possess either a written or oral source that preexisted the writing of the Gospels and Luke and Matthew had a copy of it to write their Gospel. Q stands for Quella, which in German means source. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all used mostly the Saint Mark didn't have Q. Matthew and Luke had Mark to write their gospel, a copy. And Matthew had some material of his own called Special M. And Luke had some material of his own called Special L to write their gospel. And then Matthew and Luke had Q. So I thought I'd give you an example of, well, what is Q? Q is the story of the temptation, is one of them from Matthew and Luke. They got it from Q. I'm a bit conservative about this, and I do not happen to believe that there were, was a pre-existing written Q floating around and got lost. I think it's a, a series of sources that Luke and Matthew both knew about and used, but that it's not a sort of Q Christianity. Um, I think that's a little risky and maybe pushing the evidence a little far, but it uh, is an important source, and you need to know about it. So here's what Father Keating says about what went on with Jesus in the uh, wilderness. What I'm going to read to you now, he is going to describe some things that if any of you have taken in school depth psychology courses, you will understand something about what Keating is talking about here about Jesus' development. Jesus redeemed us from the consequence of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the emergence of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness, over-identification with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without, of course, ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects for happiness. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race, he bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. You know, the early the Christians in the first three or four hundred years would have these long debates and lots of essays written on things like, Did Jesus go through a moral development? Or uh, did he have to know, be taught, get up and brush your teeth? You know... And the conclusion, well, yeah, he did. He was just like us, right? So that's what would startle some people who have a kind of uh, thing about the divinity of Christ. If you came, went back to first century Palestine and you talked to Jesus and you asked him about NASA, he would not know what in the world you were talking about. But somebody who has the view from the Middle Ages or from the Reformation... (laughs) That, God is, that he's God and therefore knows everything. It would not be what first century Palestinians thought God was. See? That's not how they thought about it. So it's important for us to be students of that as well. But the important thing that Father Keating is getting at is that when we think about these energy centers, Jesus has been everywhere you've been. Everywhere and back. And so by virtue of that, we believe as people of faith or people, those trying to be people of faith, that he constitutes for us uh, a template that we can lay over the, the challenges and the opportunities that are in front of our own lives. Security and survival. Turn these stones into bread. Affection and esteem. Go up to the pinnacle and throw yourself off. All the angels and all the beings love you and they'll hold you up and they'll fit you and do everything because you're loved, right? Go to a high place and look out and you get told, listen, if you bow down and worship me, you can have all this power and control, you know? It's pretty seductive. I told you about that New Yorker cartoon about 20 years ago. There's three guys sitting in their private club somewhere in leather chairs smoking cigars. And one looks at the other one and said, You know, Ray, there are no echelons like the upper. (laughs) See. So so a lot of people, uh, you know, become sick or crazy trying to get there, right? And here's why we have Lent, maybe to think about if we're getting off the rails, you know, seeking the upper echelons can be an, a, a real issue. <coughs> this week, I think the lesson would be to uh, think about the three energy centers. Security and survival, affection and esteem. And power and control. The one thing from Paul's reading today. Which is probably good in the midst of all this. Is this. And I'll I'll end with this. No one who believes in him will be put to shame. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. You know. You need to try. Amen. Amen.